This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations, and we're all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple-maker. Today's podcast features Discipleship.org partner Global Discipleship Initiative and their track at the National Forum called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. The track relates to what can be called church culture, which is the way you naturally function as a church. Discipleship.org has a free resource on church culture to help you become a disciple-making church. And you can download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's a visual introduction to the book Disciple-Making Culture. Download this free resource on church culture to get practical guidance on changing the culture at your church into a church that's focused on disciple-making as something you are, not just something you do. So go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for the Disciple-Making Culture visual introduction. The episode for today is called Reproducible Process GPS, featuring Greg Ogden and Ralph Rittenhouse. Take a listen. Well, here we are. Fifth session. Session five, page nine on your outline. You have, just uh, for those who may be new here, but many of you have been tracking with us uh, through the whole time. You guys are suffering through all of these sessions. Thank you for doing that. Trust that it's been beneficial. The fact that you stayed here must mean that it has been. So so we are uh, looking at the reproducible process. Uh, Just a a quick overview for those of you who are maybe joining us uh, for the first time. We started with the successful journey. This is where we want to end up. We want to have the end in mind to begin with. And so that was our first session um, yesterday, whatever time that was. And, uh, and then we have these three elements uh, that we've been unpacking in terms of what makes for a successful disciple-making journey, disciples who make disciples. So start with the relational environment, had two sessions on that. You can see that in your outline if this is new for you for the first time, uh, looking at multiplication and, and transformation. Uh, so Jesus multiplying method, methodology is an investment in a few. Uh, that's the model that we should be following. Uh, then uh, we said that the... Uh, main environment that we were uh, encouraging people to adopt was what we call a micro group, a small group of three or four uh, that contains the elements of, of transformation as well, uh, key elements of transparency and, and uh, uh, life change accountability, accountability transparencies, two of the elements that we went over of the four that we could have covered. And now in this last session, we're looking at uh, the GPS or map or the GPS reproducible process, uh, focusing in on, on curriculum. So I'm going to replay a, a, a video here uh, for those of you who may not have seen it because um, this whole issue of a tool comes up in this video, and uh, so listening for that. Why don't you, again, Ralph, introduce um, the character that we'll be looking at here uh, in a moment, Bob Marvel, and, uh, and watch your step there. Gordon. When I retired four years ago and moved up to Washington State, uh, I joined the church that I started attending the church where my son-in-law was on staff, and it happened to be this church, Cornwall Church in Bellingham, Washington. 
Um, at that point, they were not doing any kind of discipleship uh, like we've talked about. They were doing, they had small groups, lots of small groups, and they had a very strong ministry. Uh, but I sat down with the senior pastor and told him what we'd done in Southern California and how the micro groups had uh, radically impacted our church. And I said, I'd like to do some of that here, uh, if that's okay with you. And Bob said, yeah, that'd be great, but I want to be in the first group, okay? And I said, okay, you're in. And I was a little surprised that he was that aggressive and, and anxious to do that. But my wife sat down with him probably so a year later at some kind of a meeting, and they were at a table, and she said, why in the world did you get in that group with Ralph in the first place? And he said, because I've been in small groups all my life, and they didn't take us far enough. And I just felt like this might. And this is his testimony now of how this group impacted him. So, yes, this will be repetition for some of you, but repetition is a learning method. <laughs> so. I want to tell you a little bit about my introduction and my experience with quad discipleship groups uh, and using the discipleship essentials. But to understand this, give you a little bit of a backstory. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Grew up going to Sunday school, going to something very similar to Awana. Uh, spent every summer uh, in vacation Bible school. As I got older, I went to youth group. I've been in one-on-one -on -one discipleship uh, groups where I was being discipled. I've discipled individuals in one-on-one -on -one groups. I've been in men's Bible studies, couples, small groups, all these for discipleship. The purpose is for spiritual growth. And I want to uh, suggest that possibly the quads and the discipleship essentials may take things to a next level. I was first introduced to this by a man named Ralph Rittenhouse. Some of you know Ralph. We refer to him as the Quad Father around here. It was either going to be the Quad Father or Quadzilla. I decided to go with Quad Father. But I knew him years ago uh, because he was a senior pastor in Camarillo, California. His church there was a host of the Leadership Summit, as was Cornwall. So we would meet each other and see each other uh, at these gatherings of host pastors. In addition to that, his son-in-law, Mike Ford, had come on our staff, and so I knew his daughter and his, his son-in-law. After he retired uh, from vocational, full-time vocational senior pastor ministry, he and his wife, Jackie, moved here to Bellingham and became a part of Cornwall Church. And one day I was asking his daughter, Chrissy, how her dad was doing with the retirement and not preaching every week and not having Easter services or Christmas Eve and she said, well, he's really involved in this global discipleship thing, and he's really excited about that. So when I ran into him, I said, Ralph, I'd like to hear about uh, your involvement and what you've got going. So we went and had coffee. And the, the reality is this. If you ever talk to Ralph, it won't take but about three or four sentences, and somehow he has a way of turning the conversation toward Jesus and towards quads and discipleship. And so he was talking about the Global Discipleship Initiative, GDI, and what they were doing throughout the world and what these quads were. And I asked him if he was going to start one here in, in Bellingham or Whatcom County, and if so, could I be a part of it? And so I got to be a, a, one of his uh, members of his very first quad here in Whatcom County, and we signed on the dotted line that covenant on March 2nd, uh, 2016. Uh, the quad is a group of four individuals, and it uses this curriculum of discipleship uh, essentials. And there's the discipleship essentials is really a great, uh, a great foundational tool. It's almost like a systematic theology. Great foundation for people who are new to the faith. It's actually a great reminder for people who have been walking with the Lord for a while. And one of the things I love about it is that it has the discipline of Scripture memory as well as 
uh, meeting together in accountability relationships over the course of maybe a year, year and a half. And uh, the thing that I think is so great about this is that the goal is not just to become a spiritual adult. I mean, I grew up hearing about baby Christians and young in their faith, and then the goal is for them to be mature and become a spiritual adult. The goal of the quads and this curriculum is to become a spiritual parent, in that the fact is now I'm not just mature, but I am reproducing myself in others. And so the kind of the secret sauce behind all this is that in the covenant that you make from the very beginning, it's this strong consideration that you will give to at the end of your discipleship a year, year and a half, that you will then start your own quad. And the great thing about that is the way that this has a multiplying effect built into it. This is different than any other discipleship program I've been exposed to, and I think this is one of the things that will make it most effective uh, for the future. A year or so ago, I was on a sabbatical, and on that time away, uh, two things. I was walking with my wife across Spain, so I had a lot of time to think every single day. In that journey, I turned 55, which was kind of a, a milestone year. And in reflection on my life, 55, my ministry at Cornwall, the remaining chapter of being a senior pastor in the next 10 or 15 years, if the Lord were to allow, how would I best utilize that time in this, this final run of my ministry? And one of the things that I came to the conclusion of is I want to just continue to point people to Jesus. But I thought about the kind of impact that I would have of preaching sermons that would be great, of leading the church that would be great, but of pouring my life into others. And so I've just started my third quad, and I cannot imagine over the next 10 or 15 years or however long I have here on this earth and here at this church, and even beyond that into my retirement years, of ever not having a quad where I am pouring myself into other individuals, where we're learning and growing together, where I'm learning from and where it's multiplying to allow other people uh, to be able to do that with groups as well. The kind of impact that that will have on our church, the kind of impact that that will have on our community, the kind of impact that that will have in the kingdom of God is far greater than can happen just in weekend services. So I'm very excited about quads. I'm very much involved with these. I believe in these. And I really am excited that you're considering being a part of one. And I think that you'll be blessed if you do. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. What spoke to you? Transformation takes place in the quad. <laughs> Transformation takes place in the quad. Okay. What so that, that he said it helps you become not just an adult but to become a, a parent. parent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Um, so when we think of when Paul says to present everyone mature in Christ, uh, that maturity would include parenting, not just you know. And when I, if you look at uh, in, this, in transforming discipleship, I have what was Paul's model of disciple making, and what do I call it? Paul's parenting model of disciple making. And so the image that dominates it's really, it is really interesting in, in terms of the New Testament flow of of the language around disciple making. Disciple making is the language of the Gospels and the Book of Acts, right? You get into the epistles. Where's that language of discipleship? You realize it completely drops out? There's no language of discipleship in, in the epistles. You will not even see the word disciple in the epistles. Why is that? Why do you think that's what happened? What took place there? This is a new thought for some of you. I can see it <laughs> on your face. Hi. Yeah? When you transition to 
after Acts, after Pentecost, you have this community. Yeah. So you look at Timothy, he says, speak to the women as your mother, speak to the okay. men as your fathers. There's much more of a yeah. familiar, uh, a family culture right. in the congregation as okay. opposed to uh, the Jewish so a, a sort of a more of a community discipleship model, I think, is what you're saying. It doesn't mean that discipleship is not there. It just means that there's different language uh, that was being used. And uh, the language post-Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in, in the church and in, in our lives, the language is more, as we talk about it today, language is spiritual formation. So Paul says in Galatians 4.19 uh, that he... Uh, groans and travail as Christ is formed in them. So uh, I always laugh at that verse because Paul's talking about himself as being kind of pregnant. Uh, groaning and travail, being, watching the pregnancy form in, within, within the church. I don't know what Paul knew about giving birth, but um, must have seen a few groanings uh, take place in women. But So that whole indwelling of the Spirit uh, becomes more the focus of the, of the epistles. And Christ being formed in us as the, as the language. So Christ in you, you and you being in Christ, um, that kind of thing. So what else did we hear in, in this in this video? Parenting, quad, uh, approach. Yeah, right. He's caught the vision. Uh, it's become a lifestyle now. He's on his third group. Uh, so can't imagine not having. A, a group in his life now from here on out. That's exactly what we want to see people capture. You know, that discipling is a lifestyle investment. It's not a matter, it's not a program that you do for a year, even though we say in Discipleship Essentials to be committed for the year following the completion of Discipleship Essentials. Uh, obviously, the hope is for much longer than that, uh, that there would be such an inculcation of the value of discipling that becomes a part of who you are and uh, that you cannot imagine. Uh, not, have, not having people in your in life that you are investing in, that you're spending your time with, that you are helping come come uh, further along in Christ, and then them reproducing themselves as well. So, uh, just kind of a reminder. Yes. I heard that they were doing it like for a year to a year and a half. Yeah. What I did not hear is he doing one quad a cycle, or is he doing two or three quads a cycle? Uh, just I think doing one quad a cycle, one quad at a time. Uh, especially a busy senior pastor at a church that's 2,500 to 3,000. Uh, I think that's a, that's probably, as one who's been in those roles, I could only do one quad at a time. When I was a senior pastor, I did a couple quads at a time when I was a, more an associate pastor role and did not have quite the weight of responsibility that a senior pastor carries with that. So there's certainly an acknowledgement that there's difference in levels of responsibility there for that. So. Okay, let's take a look at uh, curriculum here in this final session. So our sixth GDI value is biblically-based curriculum. Uh, Discipleship Essentials covers the foundation for a life in Christ and is the empowerment tool we use to disciple others. We're going to introduce you more fully to this particular tool. Um, This is not intending to say, obviously, that this is the only tool out there. Uh, But this material was written specifically for this size group. Uh, so to the extent that uh, it was kind of geared in that direction uh, for that purpose. So I'm going to do have a couple of questions here to start with. Uh, first one, why might a foundational universal curriculum be of value? Uh, might be a, might, 
universe going to be of value for a ministry? What would be the value of having something that uh, you say we're going to use throughout the congregation, of having a, a, a foundational curriculum? What, what benefit would that have? You know what everyone has been taught. You know what everyone has... Where did that voice come from? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Say that again. You know what everyone has been taught. You have the foundational material they, they received. Okay. And you can build other things on top of that. I'm wondering, well, I wonder where they are. Yeah. So a universal foundational material is everything that has been taught. So the, I don't know if I used this image previously in other sessions, but I kind of look at uh, having this foundational curriculum uh, or a quad and the curriculum together as kind of the first stage of a multi-stage rocket. So uh, it's foundational to get a rocket off the ground and through the atmosphere of, this, of the gravitational pull that's trying to pull it back in. You need something that's going to give it thrust, Right. And we're not saying, obviously, that discipleship essentials is the end-all and be-all of all that you need. Uh, but it's something that gets you started. It gets you through that uh, gravitational pull, moving people, hopefully, from uh, consumers to contributors, from passive to active. Uh, what would you say would be one of the, the major downfalls of most of the American churches? People come to get rather than to give. Come to receive uh, the, the pastor's feeding. If you, if you can just move people from that position of I'm here to, to get to I'm going to actually be involved with leadership, you have changed a lot of the climate of the church that you want to change. So it's kind of the thrust uh, to get you going. Ralph, speak to this, this issue in terms of Camarillo experience. What was the value of having a curriculum that uh, people seem to understand across the board? Or how did that affect the psyche? You know, of, of the church. There becomes a common language, which was really helpful. Everybody's talking the same way. Everybody knows where we're going as a church. And as it began to, to filter through the entire church, uh, people understood that this, this is who we are. We, we're here to make disciples. And they began to embrace that concept of, uh, of purpose and direction. We're a disciple-making church. Uh, they began to realize that's what Jesus told us to do, is make disciples, and that's what we're doing. So they, they began to feel good about that. Uh, and their their language changed to uh, speak that way, and everybody in the congregation understood that. If you you know we're talking, well, what what lesson are you guys on? Oh, you're on number six. What's your verse for that? You know, I mean that's the kind of conversation that was going on in the con- in the church uh, because of the common curriculum yeah. that was there. Um, there uh, in the previous slide we had uh, some of the problems that that come there and one of them is that sometimes somebody will want to introduce a curriculum that's not necessarily well you know uh let's read oprah's book (laughs) that was one that actually happened (laughs) somebody wanted to introduce that as a study to do well okay (laughs) oprah's Uh, discipleship material yeah let's talk about let's talk about that um, you have a common curriculum. You know, as, as was said, what everybody's learning. Everybody's on the same page. This is something that you evaluated and know is, is solid and biblically based, and you're comfortable with it, and you know what they're learning. And you're putting them in a position to be able to judge that in the future, knowing what's biblically based, knowing what's solid, solid material. So as groups multiply and begin to infuse their life into the broader life of a congregation. This is kind of the organic growth of what happens in these multiple groups. People are studying the same thing in terms of foundational material. You have a shared language. 
So what does it take for a culture to reach the tipping point so that it becomes a disciple-making culture? Uh, and in part, it's a shared language, uh, shared theology, um, the ability to kind of sh- uh, share the same similar concepts. And so that's one of the reasons why we urge, whether it's this or something else, that you would use to say, you know, there's a need for a foundational curriculum that ties everybody together. The, the, you know, especially those of us who are pastors in this room would say, gosh, we want to make sure that people are getting those basics in place. Uh, the image that oftentimes comes to my mind is that if, if there is a foundation for the church, uh, the image for the reason, one of the reasons I wrote Discipleship Essentials was I saw a lot of missing blocks in the foundation. And uh, if you've got missing pieces in the foundation that is not you know, holistic, then you've got a you know, very insecure foundation, obviously, for the, for the building that you're, you're trying to develop. So a cultural, uh, cultural sharing. And then you can obviously branch off into different directions uh, for other things that you're, you know, you might have an apologetics track. You might have a, you know, equipping track for people to discover their gifts and engage in ministry. Uh, but what are you going to build off of? So make sure the foundation is secure, and then you can build off of, off of that for lots of different directions of what is needed. Second question that you see on the screen here is, what are the consequences if you do not have a foundational curriculum? Mission drift. Mission drift. Can you say a little bit more about that? got a mission and a vision for the church, and if you're not aligned to it, you start going out to the Oprah books. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, you have, a, you have a, something that defines the mission and gives you parameters uh, which to live within, and so you know when you're departing uh, from those parameters, or you know what to reject <laughs> uh, in terms of things that might come in for people to suggest, let's do such and such, because it doesn't fit that, that pattern. Okay? Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, Cheryl. Cheryl. Have you um, had issues or found that where people have small groups in churches, you know, like you were saying, or they're planning big events? Yeah, small groups in churches planning big events every month. How do you, when you try to introduce the idea of micro groups, Uh, how does that? happen so that, that you don't put off the people who are over there busy doing yeah. all these other Yeah, okay. I'm going to let Ralph answer that question because he's had that ex- very experience with a well-developed program and this coming 25 plus years into his pastoral ministry in terms of taking the church in a new direction. So this is a perfect question for, yeah, for Ralph it's, to it's answer. A, it's an excellent question. What are you going to run into? Oh, say the question. Repeat the question. Uh, What do you do with all the other programs in the church when you start introducing something that's maybe in a little different direction? What happens uh, to all those other groups that have their things? And uh, we certainly ran into that. We had people that want to do drug rehabilitation programs and and good things, lots of good things. And we had to decide what we're primarily there for as a church. We're there to make disciples who make disciples. And we kind of, we, we eventually got to that point where our core leadership agreed that's what we're about now. And we began to evaluate all other ministries on the basis of how that contributes to this. Did Awana really contribute to that? Well, yeah, they're discipling kids. Okay, so that makes it. Okay, that made the cut. Does the knitting group do that? 
they spend all night at church on Thursday night and for, you know between Thursday night Friday and Friday and they just knit they knit quilts. Is that what are they? You know, is that valuable? Is that how does that? Continue? You didn't kill the knitting group. Did you? I know. <laughs> we canceled Christmas one year. We canceled Christmas one year. We, I mean, we had been doing these elaborate, you know. Uh, Christmas programs with all, I mean, and it, it was a October to January event, you know, kind of a thing. And everybody, it was an all skate to do these, pull these things off. We had to have people selling tickets, people doing promotion, people memorizing scripts, people doing the song, you know. The day, all of that was a part of it. The whole church got involved in this thing. And I went to the gal who promoted all this and did this, and I say, I got this great, it's in July. I got this great idea for next Christmas. Sit down, I'll tell you about it. I, sh- I spelled out this whole new way we're going to do the Christmas thing. And she said, well, let me think about it. What do you need to think about? It's great, you know. And she, well, you know, okay. So I learned, a week later, she calls me on the phone. She says, I'd like to meet and talk about what we were talking about for Christmas. And I said, okay. And she brought her husband with her <laughs> as we sat on the takeaway. She says, I don't think we should do this. And I don't think you should do this. And I'm thinking, who signed your check, girl? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you mean you don't think we should? She said, if we do this, we did this last year. My discipleship group got canceled for three months. We can't do this if we're serious about discipleship. We cannot interrupt what we're doing to do this. She said, frankly, the people who come to our programs are people from other churches that don't have a program like this. Christians from all over the place come and watch our show. He says the real disciples that we see from this, well, you, you, how do you, where are all those decisions? You know, we have 300 decisions. Where are all those decisions? You know, where are those people? We couldn't account for most of them. Um, we had to do some radical reevaluation. Now, that came three years into this thing. You know, right away, you, nobody even knows it's going on. But eventually, it's going to begin to impact the life of the church and how you've been doing things and you'll have to start making those evaluating decisions um, and we did that and we had to well, eventually Christmas came back on a much smaller scale but, um, but we had to do some radical things at first uh, right there in the back Claudia <clears throat> closing the door Claudia really had a problem with that because she came to Christ at the Christmas program how many years ago? Thirty years ago, December 9th, she came to Christ. Okay, so you know when we canceled Christmas, still there. <laughs> but uh, you, know, you just you'll have to do that. You'll have to decide, like you did in your own personal life, what are you going to put aside in order to do this? This is a consuming thing. This is a major trans transition. Okay, let me let me take it from another angle, though, Ralph. I think uh, you're getting started. And what we try to say to people is keep everything under the radar screen for a couple of years. You don't need to go in and radically change things. You just start. You go back, Cheryl, and you start a group. And you let that group multiply quietly. There's no upfront announcements about these discipleship groups. This is not a program that you sign up for. It's not September. Sign up for discipleship groups, and we'll wrap them up in in June. You, You have a quiet subterfuge that's taking place. This is, you know, under the radar screen. 
and you let things grow quietly for a couple of years. And then the buzz starts on a relational basis. And you begin asking the question, okay, where do these uh, discipleship groups fit into the small groups program? Where do they fit into the Bible studies um, that are there? And it becomes a slow process of moving the emphasis. When, when I was in Chicago, what we, caught, we talked about was majoring in microgroups. We didn't cancel a bunch of programs. We had mid-sized communities. We had small groups. And we had microgroups. But the whole idea was we were moving people in a direction quietly and slowly. The worst thing you can do is cancel people's relational networks that they're already involved in. You'll have, your, you'll have a rebellion on your hands if you do that. We're no longer going to have this Sunday school class. You know? That one's done because we're doing this. Uh, don't do it that way. You, know, you let it slowly grow alongside. Uh, it's kind of like the wheat and the tares parable. I had a small group, and I was leading the small Some group. Come out of your mouth before you <laughs> I had a small group, and I was leading the small group, and we were, we were great. And we, this discipleship stuff was going on, and I was in discipleship group. And my small group, when we came to the end of the curriculum that we were using at that time, said, we wanted to do the discipleship stuff. I said, well, you can't do that because we don't do gender you know, mixed groups. Well, we'll have the women go in one room and the men go in the other room. Okay, well, let's go home and pray about that a little while and we'll decide. And everybody had to come to the same conclusion, ready to sign the covenant and everything that we would do that. But that group broke into a men's group and a women's group, met in the living room, met in the kitchen. And when it was done, they multiplied and the small group disappeared. Now, we didn't cancel the small group. They made that choice. And we just let it organically do what it will. Now, other groups maintained their small group, but started microgroups on the side. And the people that were in the, sm- in the small group still met and had their relationship and enjoyed that time. It takes you to a certain level. It, does, it certainly serves certain purposes. Um, but, it, uh, but we did the microgroups as well. Yes? I do remember three sessions ago or so, you mentioned there was nothing for students. In your context, what do you do? Because you're you're cultivating an adult culture of discipleship. Yeah. How do you ensure that that same culture is there's continuity between you know your your adolescence moving into adulthood? My third group at Cornwall, after I moved up to Washington, included Rob Rogers, who was here in an earlier session, gave his testimony. Uh, another pa- he was a pastor in town, another pastor in town, and a high school basketball coach who was in the head of uh, uh, athletes and FCA in the school. Uh, he immediately wants to, he got in the group because he wanted to know what to do with these FCA kids. He wanted something that he could build into them. He took it down and started using it with the FCA kids. Uh, they use the great book. Yeah. Little, the little called book. the great book because it's eight sessions, not 25. You can fit it into a, you know, the kids' schedules in that way. Uh, it's an introduction to the Great Commission, basically. Yeah, this is, this is the Great Commission all dissected and taken apart. And, and so excellent, excellent tool. As an on-ramp is what we intended it for, for the bigger book. Some people are intimidated by 25 lessons a year commitment. Okay, this one's eight lessons. That's a lot easier. They can handle that, and they'll opt for that. But it takes them right into the 
uh, 25 lesson book. So uh, this is an on-ramp for that. But <clears throat> we can use this with the students. Uh, sometimes we use other, they use other curriculums for the students, but they are using the same methodology and process that we, we do in the... Uh, so... Yeah, and I think there's ways to adapt it uh, to youth as well. I know that our church in Chicago, we had a confirmation process. Some of you maybe come up from those traditions where you infant baptism, then students are confirmed in their faith when they're older or, or, or get baptized at, at, as youth. And so we ran our confirmation process in, a, in, a, in quant, an adult leader with three students. So there's a ways, ways to do the same kind of thing because... Uh, Peers discipling peers when they're 15 years old probably would not be the best approach. Uh, would you agree? <laughs> you don't know where that's going to go. Uh, when we have, uh, when we talk about adult discipleship, this is really a more of a peer mentoring process that, we, that we're talking about. So there's ways to infuse, you know, more mature mature people in with the student life, but still do it in the same kind of context and format of the of the class. May not use the, even the same material, but use something different. So. What about what age did you start that? Well, I think it was in ninth grade uh, was the confirmation process. Of, uh, so what is that, 14 years old, something like that? Yeah. Okay. We had high school seniors and juniors that actually used the discipleship essentials. That's, it was a rare situation. Yeah. Not many of them could, but some of them did. Yeah. And I, I suggest, uh, since the curriculum was fairly thorough, Consider the discipleship essentials material, but use it as a menu from which to choose. You don't even have to do all all parts of a lesson. You know, just select certain portions of it, pare it down, make it more digestible in a sense for for the age level. That's there. Okay, um, without a curriculum, let me go through some things here. First thing is, uh, if you don't have a curriculum, one of the things for a curriculum is it lays out a plan of where you're trying to take people. You know, it gives you a picture of the territory that you're charting out. Uh, for people to have. And the image that comes to my mind is that I think many of us uh, who have been in the church life for a period of time kind of have a hodgepodge of disconnected truths. It's the image to me of puzzle pieces that get tossed in a box but have never been assembled uh, together. So you go to a sermon, you hear something great, and oh, gosh, that truth, puzzle piece. Let me toss that in the box. Um, you read a devotional material and you've got another puzzle piece, toss that in the box. Hear somebody say something that's, you know, really something you want to remember from a scripture passage, toss that in the box. But you've got a bunch of pieces <laughs> and it hasn't been assembled. So hopefully when, one of the things a decent curriculum can do is assemble the puzzle pieces and create a holistic picture of what the Christian life is all about. That's kind of the image. I completed uh, a discipleship group. Uh, actually with two women. That's not something I would recommend, but we were trying to get it started with the women in our church, and so they said, Greg, why don't you pick two of us and get the whole thing rolling? So uh, I had a woman about 10 years my junior and one about 10 years my senior in this group, and she came to me afterwards, the 10-year one, 10 years my senior, and she says, Greg, I've got a confession to make. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, I got in the group because I wanted to spend some time with you. Well, thank you. appreciate the admiration. But she said, one thing that startled me was I didn't realize um, that I had these missing tiles in my life. And she used the image of a mosaic. She said, I grew up in a pastor's home. I had the Bible as a part of my life, all my life. But I've never seen the picture of the totality of what the Christian life is all about. And you filled in these missing tiles uh, in, in my life. So at least the, the curriculum helped do that. 
So with, if you don't have a, plan, a curriculum, you don't have a plan. Secondly, if you don't have a curriculum, you will not be intentional uh, in terms of what you're, you're trying to accomplish. The way we define discipling in Discipleship Essentials is this. Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow towards maturity in Christ. This includes equipping the disciple to teach others as well. The rewrite uh, of Discipleship Essentials puts it this way. This includes equipping the disciple to make disciples who make disciples. Uh, so that's, uh, in that sense. So intentional. When you think of the word intentional, what, what comes to your mind? What other words come to your mind? Purpose? Deliberate. 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 Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, have an outcome in mind. An outcome in mind. in mind. Yeah, okay. We're going somewhere. We have a, some intent to arrive at a destination. Uh, that's, that's the successful journey image that we have uh, on, on the screen here. So intentional. Uh, the opposite of intentional is what? Unintentional. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Random, haphazard. Uh, let's get together when we can. You know that kind of thing. Uh, so there's. Uh, so you think of it as planned. You think of it as scheduled. You think of it as putting something in your, uh, in your, in your diary, as we might say it in England, um, for which uh, which is set apart time. So. There's a destination, there's a larger reason and purpose uh, for you being together, so it's intentional. Without a curriculum, you don't have a transferable tool. So that's the, uh, also another reason behind this. Uh, in the very first session, I said, uh, imagine there's, there's a new believer uh, that comes into your church. Uh, maybe they even came to faith in Christ in your church, and they're excited about their faith, and so... Uh, you as maybe a pastor come alongside Joe or Jane and uh, you approach uh, somebody on a Sunday morning and say, you know, Joe and Jane has come to faith in Christ, excited about growing, and uh, here's my challenge for you. I want you to walk alongside Joe or Jane and for the next year and help them become a disciple of Christ, and your job is not done until they can reproduce themselves and others. What do you think the average person would uh, how would the average person respond to that challenge in your congregation? Can't do it. Um, one of the things they might say is, what would I do? You know, what territory should I cover uh, with somebody? Um, others might say, well, I'm not sure enough or whatever uh, with that. But one of, the, one of the ways to address that is you've given people at least a structure, a curriculum, some material that they, you can walk through with others. So the idea that you use something over and over again. Um, so uh, certainly this is material that I've used over and over again. I can't tell you, I don't even know how many groups I've led through the same material. But uh, material never gets old. Why does it not get old? Because the personality of every group is different. <laughs> And you're interacting with people uh, as as they're interacting with content, uh, and it's, uh, it's it never it never gets old from that from that perspective. So transferable tool. Um, with a, without a curriculum, you don't have a sense of progress. Uh, where am I going? Where am I taking somebody? What, again, that comes back to intentionality, I guess, in terms of the overall sense of thing. When I was doing one-on-one discipling uh, and meeting with men in particular. 
uh, I would cobble together different ele- different things. We would, I would say, well, gosh, gosh, we should go over some of the basic doctrines of the faith. Well, let's let's study John Stott's book, Basic Christianity. So we'd read through that and spend some time on that. I guess we should really work on uh, devotional life. Um, gosh, I need to get some material on devotional life. Cobble that together on Bible study, prayer, quiet time. And so, okay, let's do that. Well, gosh, what, what's it like to be a, a, a Christian father? Better, better spend some time on that. So it was just kind of making up topics as they go. And I thought, I need some place at least where I can start uh, with carrying people through to give a sense of progression rather than hopping around to different topics. And so I, you will see the, the flow here in a second of why I've put together what, what we have in terms of giving that sense of, of progress. And then the fifth point here is you will not have a structure to define your time together. We've probably all been a part of small groups, maybe even smaller small groups like these microgroups, where you can spend a lot of time just shooting the breeze, right? <laughs> you know, going over the football game from over the week and uh, how was your week and getting off and all the various topics. And you don't have a, a structure for your time. Or, and as Ralph shared uh, in a previous session, uh, oftentimes things will come up in terms of quality of life threatening experiences in the lives of people, right? So it could be a health condition, uh, like when I got, you know, cancer diagnosis in 2008, and my guys spent a lot of time ministering to me, you know, in terms of anticipating that. We would get off the curriculum, uh, but we had something to come back to that was a structure. So, yeah, you want us to pay attention to the issues going on in people's lives, whether it's a marriage issue that uh, Ralph shared uh, in his group, uh, or whatever things. And so you can depart, but then you have tracks to run on, and you get back to, uh, in terms of a structure. So it's, it's valuable from, from, that, from that standpoint. So um, here's, well, you know, Discipleship Essentials. How many of you are familiar with Discipleship Essentials? I won't bore you with the content here since you're, you're familiar with it. So, but you can see some of the details here. 25 lessons written for specifically things we're talking about. A covenant relational tool leads to transformation in the environment. The tool doesn't transform anybody. Uh, I want to make that clear just because you're running through a method. Uh, that doesn't change lives. The Holy Spirit working through people as you're processing the truth of God's word is what changes lives. So uh, it creates that contact. And uh, is it pre- it's a precedent for the book Leadership Essentials, which I don't think we have with us. Uh, here, I don't believe we brought that. Leadership Essentials, did I bring Leadership Essentials? Okay, oh, we do have that. Okay, okay, thank you. So, yeah, Leadership Essentials is uh, designed for, this This is a, as a prerequisite for that, used to help, you know, you develop your leadership farm system and with either official groups like the elders or people that you're just trying to raise up in terms of leadership roles. Um Transforming Discipleship, this is kind of the text uh, that goes into um, the details here. Three major parts, the need for disciple-making in the church today. So the first two chapters are on the symptoms of the low state of discipleship, and the chapter two is on the causes of those symptoms. The center section is on Jesus and Paul's uh, method or means of growing disciples, so looking at a strong biblical foundation. And then taking Jesus and Paul 
approach and say, how do we translate that into the life of the church? How do we make that, that work? And you've been hearing a lot about that. So, so I would say that discipleship and essentials in these two kind of go hand in glove. This is more of the, the text. This is the curriculum that implements the content of, of that text. So, and then, uh, already been alluded to, this is my latest book, uh, Essential Guide to Becoming a Disciple. It, it's designed to be an on-ramp to the discipleship process. Some people can be overwhelmed by the size of this, uh, but this is not as overwhelming <laughs> in terms of the overall size. So it's uh, so eight lessons on the um, Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and, uh, and answers the question, if I want to be a disciple, what's expected of me? Uh, so it gives a thoughtful process, and then there's a sort of a commitment to that longer discipleship process at the end of the book that says, are you all in or not? Are you ready to go on uh, and d- dive into the longer process of this discipleship? So those are three of the, the materials. Um, so transferable tool. I just want to tell one story connected uh, to this. How are we doing time-wise? Okay. Um, so you see in the middle point here, uh, if someone is new, even they can uh, get enough in a period of time to be able to disciple others. One of the men I had in my group was by the name of Mick. Uh, Mick came to our church about age 65 with his wife, Sally. Uh, he had been a lifelong Roman Catholic, uh, had gone to Mass every Sunday for 65 years, um, and he married a young Methodist gal. She converted to Roman Catholicism so they could get married in the church uh, in their early 20s. And now Sally in her 60s is saying, I want to return to my Protestant roots. And she would sit in, Rome, in, in Mass and she would just have her Bible open and read the Bible during Mass. And uh, so now she was saying, Mick, if you want to come with me, but I'm heading back into the Protestant world after 40 years later. So Mac, Mick shows up at the first... Uh, at our um, new members class, excuse me. And uh, he hands me a notebook. It's 97 single space pages. And he studied uh, Lorraine Bettner's uh, introduction to Reformed theology. And uh, so he's comparing uh, that and uh, Roman Catholicism. Actually, I don't think that's the right book. So he's typed up 97 pages. Uh, He said, you know, The Protestant world is entirely new to me in terms of theology, but now I'm convinced. I have a satisfied mind that I can join a Protestant church after doing all the study. So I thought, well, Mick's going to be a great candidate for a small group. Just just getting one going at the time, so I pulled him aside, invited him to join us. He was eager to do that. Um, We met in a law office on Thursday mornings at 6.30 around the conference table. First day, Mick shows up with his thick study Bible with all the tabs on it for the books of the Bible. And he puts his hand on, on the Bible and he says, you know, I've never opened a Bible. I said, you mean you've never studied it seriously? He said, no, I have never opened a Bible. He did all of his you know, study on Reformed theology by looking at textbooks, but not really ever opened the Bible to study it. I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting journey, you know, an entirely new discovery of what's in this book in terms of even how it's laid out. But Mick went after it, just like he had done that 97-page paper, 
and you know, dug into scriptures and started uh, going after it. He was one of the ones that had a real difficult time memorizing scripture. He just could not get it, and he was very in, in tears, but finally did. And uh, 18 months later, he was leading his own discipleship group. So uh, we, did, we went down a lot of rabbit trails. We had to correct a lot of his, you know, I've got to earn my salvation theology uh, that kept popping up uh, and that and beating that out of him. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, but uh, he he could take it, you know. You could go after him straight, and uh, but it was it's just a joy to see somebody. Now, Mick was smart enough to know what he didn't know. Okay, so when he would get questions in his new discipleship group that he couldn't answer, he didn't try to answer it. He made a list, and then about every three or four months, he'd invite me in to tackle the questions that they, that they had or that they, they couldn't, couldn't answer. So that was a way of dealing with that. And, uh, so, but they were able to progress along uh, in, in, that, in that fashion. Okay, uh, let me just uh, quickly kind of run through the design of Discipleship Essentials, if you, if you allow me. And uh, so if I can just give you the overflow, overview and flow of why it's structured the way it is. So section one called Growing Up in Christ, starts with two lessons. What is discipling and who is a disciple? Um, that sets the tone uh, for, the, for the curriculum. Uh, what is discipling? Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love. Uh, this includes equipping the disciple to make disciples who make disciples. So every lesson has a core truth. It's the theme of the lesson. And so I wanted to start with, okay, where are we going with this? Right up front, I want you to know what this book is all about. And then the second lesson happens to be, who is a disciple? Uh, the disciple is one who responds in faith and obedience to the gracious call to follow Jesus Christ. Being a disciple is a lifelong process of dying to self while allowing Jesus Christ to come alive in us. So there you go. That's, that sets the tone. And then lessons three through six are really just an introduction to personal and corporate spiritual disciplines. Uh, why did I put this up front like this? Because I wanted people to practice these early on. Uh, so an introduction to having a quiet time. You know, what elements should be included in a time set aside each day to rendezvous with, with Jesus. That's the phrase I use. A private rendezvous with Christ. You know, secreting away. Uh, and included in that, of course, are prayer and Bible study uh, in terms of introduction to some of the basics of that. And then corporate worship is a part of that as well. So where we focus in on Isaiah's encounter with the living God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So wanting to practice this throughout because the whole structure uh, sets that tone. And then in the next section called uh, the message of Christ, this is kind of the core doctrinal section of the scriptures here. So what are the foundational teachings of our faith? that all of us would share in common. I hope I've done a decent job of laying out this. It kind of follows the Trinitarian format, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So lessons seven and eight here really are introduction to the triune God. And uh, what does it mean to be made in the image of the triune God? So what is the image of God in us? All kinds of answers to that question that have kept theologians employed, you know, throughout 2,000 years, right? Uh, I believe it's a relational image. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has existed eternally as the first community. And out of love, He's made us for relationship with Himself. And 
We are made in the image of God, male and female, relationally connected to each other. And what's the great commandment? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That takes us right back to the heart of us. So out of the fullness of who God is, as a, tri- as a, a community complete within himself, needing nothing, he makes us for a relationship with himself. But what happened? We broke relationship. That's what sin is. We rebelled. Genesis 3. Um, so the serpent comes along. Did God say, um, you should not eat of any tr- fruit of the tree in the garden? No, God said you can freely eat of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And, of course, we have that distrusting the goodness of God and rebelling against his authority. But did God give up on us? No. He pursued us in grace. Genesis 4 on, that's all about the pursuit of love, the love, love story. And the prodigal son story is at the heart of that particular lesson. Wandered away, but the father's waiting for us to come back into the relationship. And, and then chapter 11 is kind of, a, in a sense, an overview catch-all chapter in terms of uh, who is Jesus, what did he do in his death for us, and then the demonstration of the power over death through the resurrection. Uh, in that in that lesson. So the heart of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us is there. And from that, what are the benefits that we receive uh, from that, that work? Well, we are justified by faith alone. Um, we are declared right before God based upon the finished work of Christ when we put our trust in him. Uh, nothing we can add to that, that finished work. Uh, so I'd like to say we go from the courtroom into the living room. <laughs> We go from the courtroom where we declare right before God, that's justification, into the living room where we are declared the adopted children of God. That's one of my favorite lessons because this was one of the hardest things I ever had to try to fully comprehend at the gut level, that I was a beloved child of the Father. I was adopted uh, into, into his family and had to go through some special help uh, to get to that place of, of understanding and comprehending that. So... Uh, this answers the question, what has Christ done for us? Then we move to the third section, becoming like Christ. What does Christ want to do in us? How does he want to transform us? How does he want to change us? Of course, this is where we complete with the work of the, the Holy Spirit, the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit in our life. Uh, the Spirit of Jesus living with us. I send you another counselor, one like myself. And we get introduced to who, the, who is the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit's work in our life? And then, of course, the fruit of the Spirit. These delicious qualities. When you read the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, don't you say to yourself, man, I want those things in my life. <laughs> those, are the, those are the delicious qualities that we get. And then some other elements of what Christ wants to do in us. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. Love, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, when it moves to, a, to the social level in terms of impact upon the world, is biblical justice, uh, which is really God's heart for the poor and the marginalized, the dispossessed, etc. A theme that runs out, the pervasive uh, through Scripture. And then finally in this lesson is, is witness. Uh, that we are all witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and we practice our witness. We practice our story at this point. We write out our, our story in terms of how God, how we are a witness to what God's transformational work is in our life so that we can share that, that with others. And then uh, the last section is serving Christ. 
What does Christ want to do for us? What does Christ want to do in us? What does Christ want to do through us? Uh, so there's that movement outward. And so what's the role of the church in God's scheme of things? He's not just creating individual believers who have been saved. He's creating a new community, a body of Christ. We're saved into community. Uh, there's no such thing as solo discipleship. Make that emphasis. You, have, you do it with others. And in the context of that community, we discover we have ministry gifts. And uh, we look at the gifts of ministry, and, and this is always a tricky chapter because every theological framework has their own view of ministry gifts, right? So if you're Pentecostal, you have a, your view. If you're uh, some certain traditions where you think the gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic era. So I'm trying to weave my way through this minefield <laughs> of ministry gifts and um, this. And so basically I take the stand that Paul gives us illustrations of gifts in the New Testament. And we help identify each other's gifts. One of my favorite exercises in the book is, you've been together now for a while. Uh, let's help each other see what we see about the ministry gifts that God has given us. And we affirm each other with those gifts. And you walk out of that day feeling pretty good about yourself. Uh, spiritual warfare, uh, Ephesians 6, of course, put on the whole armor of God. Uh, obedience, put off the old nature, put on the new uh, nature framework called the principle of replacement there. And then lesson 24 is sharing the wealth, recommitting yourself to invest in others as well. And you will notice uh, a bonus lesson when I with Discipleship Essentials was re-released in 2007 and a varsity press said, uh, you want to add anything? And I said, we need to add something on stewardship. Uh, you know, I think the scripture is pretty clear that money is a direct indicator of where our heart is, uh, or where our discipleship is, of where your heart is. Where treasure is, there's your heart also. So there's a lesson on, on money uh, there. So that's the that's the quick over. Oh, oh, we're done here, aren't we? Thank you so much for hanging in there with us. Appreciate it. Uh, it's been a joy being with you all. And blessings on your ministry, and uh, we'll check. Let us know what's going on. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out and download for free the visual primer for the book, Disciple Making Culture. You can download this at discipleship.org ebooks. Until next time.